Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Sophie Ellis-Bexter and welcome to Spinning Plates, the podcast where I speak to busy working women who also happen to be mothers about how they make it work. I'm a singer and I've released seven albums in between having my five sons aged 16 months to 16 years, so I spin a few plates myself. Being a mother can be the most amazing thing, but can also be hard to find time for yourself and your own ambitions. I want to be a bit nosy and see how other people balance everything. Welcome to Spinning Plates. Hello, Spinning Plate Podcasts. How are you doing? Um, have you been having a good week? What's been happening around here? Uh, it's been a mixture of things, really. I know we've entered into a second lockdown phase here in the UK, but it doesn't feel quite the same as the first one, mainly because the kids are at school. So I'm sort of getting through bits and bobs of the day, although I've still got a ton of things I meant to sort out, I don't know, weeks ago. I'm sitting, as I speak to you, in the room that is actually where my littlest one, Mickey, sleeps, but it's also my dressing room. And the poor kid, it's a good job he's not able to articulate how he feels about being surrounded by piles of shoes, clothes, uh, various items and accessories, or else he'd just be saying, Mum, please, it's a little bit overstimulating in here. Um, but then maybe it's quite nice to be surrounded by feathers, chiffon, bright colours, sequins. Um, <laughs> don't worry, I do make sure he sleeps in the dark, so he's not kind of being dazzled by my sequin garments as he tries to sleep. Uh this week, I spoke to someone, I'm going to be very, very honest with you. Uh, I'd never met Gina Miller before. I knew of her after she um, took Parliament to court over initiating Brexit unconstitutionally. Um, but I was a bit intimidated, actually. Um, and when I first sent off my email, I just found the contact for her when I sort of did a bit of a Google search. And I sent off this little email into the ether saying I'd like to speak to her. Um 
And when she got back to me, uh, I was a little bit like, oh, I've actually got to follow up on this now because, um, you know, it can be quite intimidating to speak to somebody who's clearly very bright, um, calls out any unfairness, has a good sense of justice um, and has really used all those skills for good. Um, you know, not not everybody acts upon those impulses. Not everybody is good at standing up on their own and being the only one to call something out. So I thought, ah, you know, is she going to be scary? <laughs> Which actually I'm kind of sheepish to admit, but I think maybe it's worth voicing because I think... Sometimes it's, you know, it's how you feel, isn't it? It's your gut reaction to someone when they're whip smart. But actually, she was completely lovely and warm and uh, brilliant at explaining her motivation for wanting to do things like take the government to court, uh, which actually was born out of initially a sense of unfairness when she had her first baby at 25 and her first baby, a little girl, had um, special needs. And Gina found herself really quite alone. And that set her firmly in her sights. I have to fight for, for my little girl. It's for the two of us now. Uh, she raised her as a single mum. And it was really defining and I think completely changed the course of her life. Um, as, uh, as is often the case if you have a baby, but it's particularly a baby that has extra challenges. And maybe uh, you need to be an extra voice for them for the rest of their lives, actually. Uh, for the rest of your life. Um, so, yeah, it was a pleasure to speak to Gina and to hear how brave she'd been. And, uh, yeah, thank you to you for lending me your ears. Thank you, to Gina, for her, her wisdom and her time. And um, I'd be really interested to know what you think. I, I felt like I learned a lot from Gina. I felt like um, it was a real privilege to be able to sit with her and just have a proper, proper chat. Uh, so, yeah, I'm excited to share it with you, as ever. And uh, from the, I'm going to listen to it again from the comfort of this dressing room and... Who knows, maybe I might even get around to hanging up some of these piles of stuff while I'm listening in with you. All right, lots of love. See you in a bit. Bye. Well, um, thank you so much for joining me today, Gina. It's lovely to see you. I've been really, really keen to meet with you. <laughs> And I'm just trying to think. We've had, we've only, we haven't met before today, but we did have a very brief phone call yes. uh, last week. And we, I think we probably spoke for about four or five minutes and managed to cover tons of topics. So I'm hoping that we can pack this with much... I was just so excited. I think within that five minutes, we covered um, raising a child with special needs, what it's like having someone that is being cared for this year with lockdown, uh, women in the business room and how, because now people are working from home, this might be something that's detrimental to yes. female business women. And maybe that's quite a good place to start, actually, because... It's something I hadn't thought of at all because everybody's saying so much about how brilliant it is when people are working from home and setting their own boundaries about working from home. But actually the practicality of that for lots and lots of us is it's been a bit of a nightmare, really. Well, I, I think it's um, there's so many things like, um, under cover of COVID, as I call it, mm. which are not necessarily going to be as positive as people are portraying. And I think part of it is because it's too early to tell. Um, you know, we're making, or businesses in particular, making seismic decisions when we have so many unknowns, and I'm just baffled as to how they can already have decided on that. So I started becoming suspicious because unfortunately I've got a suspicious mind. And I thought, I wonder if there's something else going on. And so I started reaching out and speaking to quite a lot of my girlfriends and friends who work in, in different industries. So no, no particular industry, just generally uh, when working from home. 
And they started saying the same things, which is they're not being included in meetings. Um, they're having to do the same workload, but at night. So they're having their present, you know, they may not be at present at work, but they're present at home. So the call on them is enormous now to try and really be superwomen and juggle everything. Mm. Um, and the kids and husbands are expecting them to cook more and be more homely. And, you know, all the things that the media is saying, how oh, it's wonderful that they can do at home. But then they're having to work at night to catch up because their workload at, at work hasn't gone away. So their days are longer. They're more exhausted. Mm. The fact they're not being included in meetings. Um, when they are included, you know, they're, they're silent. They're being spoken over because it's so much easier to do that on a Zoom meeting or Teams to actually speak over someone and silence them. So there's this feeling that they're being pushed out and sidelined. And if that's already happening after just a few months... I'm really concerned about what that means for the last few decades of advancements we've made of women being in work. I mean, we've fought for generations to be in the workplace, yeah. to have the freedom to aspire and to live our dreams outside the home. And all of a sudden, we're saying, well, actually, your place is in the home. And that's a really, really worrying trend. And then I started um, looking around to see if there was anything academic that was coming out or any research. And I alighted on a research paper from McKinsey's just two weeks ago. And they spoke to a huge number of women. And 25% of women were saying already they're finding the pressure too much. And so they're either making thinking about um, lessening their time at work or, or stopping working. And I'm thinking, my gosh... 25% yeah, a is a huge number, again, already. Mm. But then there's also the issue of those who are working from home and do stay at home. What is an employer's duty of care? How do they look after them online? Um, how do they ensure that their we mental well-being is fine at work? Has remote working suddenly opened a door to less health and safety and duty of care from employers. So this is a sort of a bit of a hornet's nest, I think, that mm. we haven't, we're going to have to address and talk about. And I, what I'd like to see is women's voices being heard because many of the positive voices or the ones who are talking about how wonderful it is are male. Mm. We're not hearing that many women talking about the practicalities of, you know, this hybrid life that we're going to have in the future. Yeah, well, I think it's... Um there's a, a bit in your book, I think you said something like women are expected to be commanding in the boardroom and sort of nurturing and, and motherly when they're at home. And I suppose this year has really made the juxtapositions, those two things, but they're, they're not easy bedfellows at all. And I, I suspect the dynamic of things in my house is mirrored in households up and down the country, if not around the world, where you know, whilst I have a very modern relationship, my husband and I still have some traditional elements in that he has a place he can go to that's his workspace, and I don't, and I never have done. And some of that was a bit conscious, because when I started working, I thought, I don't really want the fact that I go to work to be something that's held over my kids' heads when I'm at home. I want them to be, yes. I want to be very accessible to them. I want to be there for them. But when I tried to reintroduce boundaries this year, it's been really stressful. It is stressful, and I think that's, that's the thing that we, we're going to have to see how this goes in the future because it is. We, I don't want to close the door on women having the opportunity mm. to pursue their dreams. And then I think back to a few conversations I had four years ago when I deliberately, in my campaigning um, sort of life, 
I deliberately tend to go and see people who don't agree with me. I think I, <laughs> I learn more because I want to understand, but also, I, I, you know, I know people agree with me. So, you know, l- let's go into the lion's den, as it were. So I took it on myself to go and see lots of politicians and business people who didn't agree with me when it came to Brexit or political parties or whatever. And one of the things I was told which is also worrying me in the place we are now, and I have echoes of this conversation in my head, was there was a period about three or four years ago when I don't know if you're in London, there were about four deaths in one week in gangs. There was, there was a horrific two or three weeks. But in one particular week, there were four deaths. And um, I was talking to this individual, very senior politician, member of something called the ERG, and he sort of said, no, no, you're not thinking big enough, Gina. And I thought, okay, what does that mean? He said, well, be it absenteeism, you know, low attainment levels, what's wrong is there's too many women in, in the workplace. He said, well, this, it all comes down to the fact that the family unit is fractured. And that whole conversation of that real belief, he didn't say it because he was being misogynistic. He really meant it. He really believed it. And I'm thinking and I'm looking at politics now and very many of his ilk are actually now in power. And I'm wondering, that phrase, under cover of COVID, what it allows them to maybe bring in is more of a what they see as a more traditional view of family and work and this stoling the fact that women should be doing gardening and we should discover sewing and knitting and all the conversations that are now starting to bubble up, but in a positive frame of mind Mm. rather than... So the narrative has changed around these activities, but it's still putting us back in our box almost. That's what's really concerning. That is concerning. There's a lot to unpick there. And I'm I'm wondering as well, when you first... I mean, now, obviously, you know, you you work as a, a sort of business activist, but you know, looking back over your life story, it seems that when you were young, the world of politics and business was quite far away from the environment you were offering. It's not, I mean, were your parents in the business world and were they in politics? So my father was uh, very much an activist lawyer. Okay. Uh, so he was, I was really fortunate to be his daughter, is my view. is that So he would come home and talk to me. He believed that the law wasn't in books. It was about people's lives. And he'd tell me about who he'd seen that day. Um, and when we were growing up, I was about six or seven, and we then had a dictator. And my father was um, instrumental in setting up um, a political party against him and trying to bring people's rights to the fore. So I grew up with it all the way through my life. Um, It was fighting um, injustices was just something we grew up as a family knowing. I mean, I'm the only one who's not a medic. It's quite interesting. (laughs) In my entire family, I say mind, body, plastic surgery, they're all covered. (laughs) But they all went into a sort of vocational profession. Mm. And I wanted to go into law, but from the point of view of seeing it as a vocation, not just as a profession. And that was tough in the UK. But my mother, she was different. She was a disciplinarian. But she was an eco-warrior before I think the term was even invented. Mm. So her lessons to us were that, you know, everything you have could be gone tomorrow, that uh, every tin could be reused, every bit of uh, sort of string was rolled up and put in a drawer, everything had a place. So she was very practical, Mm. but always that thing she drilled into us is take care of what you've got because it could be gone and it could be you asking for help tomorrow. So they were very caring and very nurturing individuals. Um, so I think my campaigning comes from the fact that they instilled in me this idea that everyone has a responsibility yeah. um, for the world we live in, and it's the way I bring my children up. So I don't have different conversations 
with my children than I do with my friends. I mean, I, the tone and the language I'll of use course, is yeah. different. But I, so I, I carry, I've carried on their tradition yeah. um, of, of that sort of sense of responsibility. I, yeah, I mean, it sounds like your parents instilled a lot, and especially a sense of fairness. And um, and and as you say, like there were a bit the possibility that everything can turn tomorrow. So you know, be, look after the world that's around you because you might not, you can't count on anything for the next day. But when you were growing up and sent to it's Eastbourne, isn't it? You yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, I still think the world of. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm being really naive here, but to me, the world of politics is still quite different to. To, you know, growing up with a, a lawyer father, I, I suppose what I'm getting at really is, was it very intimidating to start being present to those things or is it something that comes quite naturally to you? Oh, to no, no. I mean, I, I, I say it's taken me 30 years to find my true voice as a campaigner. It, it's terrifying to start with. Mm. But the positives are that you can learn to get better at it. It's something you can learn. Um, but it's pretty terrifying when you're taking on... Um, the establishment, basically, and taking yeah. on people who are much more experienced than you and have teams around them. But for me, my first awakening was through motherhood. And I think that's the thing, because, you know, being a mother, you're a lioness and you're going to fight for your child. And so for me, my first, I found my campaigning voice through my daughter, through my special needs daughter, who's now 32. But if you can imagine being a young mother, I so wanted, I decided I want, I had a plan. And my plan was I was going to be successful in whatever I was going to do, but I didn't want to give it up and have time out to have a family. So I was going to have the family young and they, they were going to grow up with me. You know, oh, we're going to work out beautifully. Of course it didn't. <laughs> um, so I was pretty young. I was 24 when I had her and um, or when I fell pregnant. And so I was young. I was excited. But the UK... NHS was more or less where it is now. It was really about to fall over and we had a huge shortage of midwives, um, uh, postnatal care. So when I went in to have her, there, were, there was nobody to deliver her. So instead of me going in labour at sort of 11 o'clock on the Thursday, she wasn't born until the Saturday night at 10 o'clock. So she was in huge distress um, and she was starved of oxygen. So there I was, my, you know, couldn't wait to hold my beautiful baby girl but very soon, my instinct, that mothering instinct, kicked in. And everyone around me kept telling me I was paranoid, that I was a first-time mother, I was fussing too much. Um, and it took me a whole year before anybody would believe me because she started missing her, life, her milestones. But I instinctively knew something was wrong. She was too good. She never cried. She never, even when she was hungry, she never actually would cry and ask for food. She, she just didn't react as a baby should. Um, and so... I started asking for help and asking. And what I found out very quickly is that unless I had money to access consultants or I had money to access um, advisors or, you know, whoever it was uh, from the council, from lawyers, legal profession, whoever I went to, you had to have money to try and get anywhere. And I just felt this was wrong. Mm. So I started, I, I turned up at the <laughs> East Sussex um, offices, the council offices, and said, I want you to see my child. There's this thing, I know you have these things uh, set in place for uh, assessment of ch children with special needs. I want my daughter to have that. And they kept saying, no, she doesn't qualify, you don't qualify. And so I started campaigning. And the, um, you know, the culmination of that work led to the Special Needs Act in 1996, which I drafted some of the legislation for. And that was it. I, I was fighting for her. Yeah. Because to me, the injustice was that all parents and all children should have access to special needs um, help medically, but also when they go to school to statements. 
And at that time, it wasn't the case. And I just felt it was so inhumane yeah. to not have that. So I think she gave me the bravery to take on. I mean, I remember vividly sitting outside, literally terrified to go in there and take on the councillors. Um, but I knew I had to do it for her. Yeah, because then you were still only, what, like 26? Yeah, I, I knew. I mean, because the alternative was, what, what the local authorities were telling me and the doctors were telling me is that she should go to an institution. Mm. And that was my choice. I either fight for her or I lose her. So, you know, faced with that choice, it wasn't a choice. No. Wow, yeah, I mean, the, the way I've heard you speak about your daughter is really beautiful. It sounds like you're, it's been such a formative and loving relationship. And I mean, it's so, I always think it must be so tricky because if you're, when you're having a baby, everybody always says the same thing. Well, so long as it's healthy, you know, do you think, are you hoping for a boy or girl? Don't mind as long as it's healthy. And actually, if anything happens that makes you fall outside of that, it's incredibly isolating. Um, and during this time, your relationship with your daughter's father was also... Yes, because he, he, he was um, you know, very sort of proper family, if you like, sort of middle-class, Eastbourne type family. And they just believed the experts and said she should be in a home. Mm. I mean, there was n- no questioning of the experts. No, um, you know, how could you? And th- so they then started saying, sort of turning on me almost and saying, but you're wrong. You, what do you know? Mm. You're her mother, yes, fine, but you're not the expert. And, and in the end, that's about, so that would fracture any relationship. Yeah. And then when I, the more time I... Um, so first of all, I refused to give her up, which they thought I should have done. Um, and my um, husband was then started thinking I was spending too much time looking after her because I didn't want other people to come in. So he felt neglected. Um, so it was a terrible combination. Um, yeah. And, you know, and I just couldn't. I... I couldn't see anything other than her and her care um I was just totally focused on that because I kept thinking no she's going to be the best she can be Mm. she's just going to be so I things like I'd spend four or five hours when she was about two and she still wasn't walking and they didn't find anything wrong with her physically I used to take her to this playground in Old Town in Eastbourne and literally put one foot in front of the other because I knew she loved coming down the slide so that was her reward Mm -hmm. but we work hard for hours putting her one foot and me physically putting her foot one foot above the other on the step. And in the end, she learned it, but it took months. But I was convinced that she was going to do it. And then the other thing, which you will love to hear, is that they never thought she would speak. And I had this really rusty um, mini. Do you remember the old minis? I literally, in winter, it was ice, and I put my foot through the bottom because it was so <laughs> rusty. It was terrible. And I had this old second-hand car seat for her in the back. And you the old cassette players? Yeah. And uh, they were telling me that she'd never be able to talk or whatever. And I looked in the rearview mirror one day, and I realized she was trying to um, mouth the words from the song. So I bought um, a toy... You remember early learning centres? Of course, yeah. <laughs> so I bought a toy um, drum kit for her um, and one for me, and we tapped out words and, from songs. So that's how she learned to speak wow. because music has an incredible therapeutic side to it and it connects a completely different part of the brain. Mm. And so she learned to speak because of music. And later, a few years later, when um, we moved to London and uh, it was her and me and I'd be uh, sort of cleaning the house on the weekend or the flat... We'd be jumping around the sofas to Iggy Pop and to Pretenders <laughs> because it was the thing that brought us together that made her so happy. Oh, does she still <laughs> love music now? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. 
She absolutely. I mean, it's it especially live music. Ah. It has a very different therapy to recorded music. Yeah, no, there's so much that music can do for for kids and for people with special needs, and it's like a really vital thing. Um, and the way it builds morale, good for memory and for joy and fun. It's just and joyous. Confidence. Yes. <laughs> yeah, all these things. I'm very glad to hear about that. <laughs> but can you remember back to what it was like for those those months you know that stood there just you and her in the playground did you feel did you have a support network around you did you no but I felt very isolated because um Eastbourne is a quite a um I'd say I'm not saying this because it's not true it or it's a negative it just is a white community it's a fairly white I've community I've been to Eastbourne it's okay <laughs> I would agree um, with that very traditional and so I um my my school I went there was wonderful and, and multicultural and it was brilliant, but my husband was from Eastbourne, so we went back there when Lucianne was born. Um, so, no, there wasn't much of a network. Um, and what I also found was this competition between parents. So everyone was talking, at, when you go, it's this, you know, my child's doing this, then doing this. And, of mm. course, she wasn't doing any of it. And, you know, we had four or five different people from the NCT and we kept together and she was falling so further behind. And that's something my, her father couldn't cope with. Mm. He, he wanted to be proud of her doing these things. And, of course, she wasn't. Um, so it was incredibly isolating. So when she was four and the marriage fell apart, I... I came to London. I came back and that's when I had a network because my brothers were here. They were younger than me. I hadn't really told them what was going on because they had to get on with their own lives. But then I was able to have a network with my elder brother, his wife, new wife, um, who's Irish and completely insane and loveliest person with a golden heart. Honestly, the most wonderful, gentle person ever. So suddenly I had her, my brother and then my younger brother. So, so then there was a network. But that must have been such a scary time for you so you moved into a flat just you and Lucianne well I moved in first of all with with my younger brother Mm. um but that was too much for for him uh he also found it quite stressful having her around because she she was very disruptive at that time we hadn't sort of worked out how to get her into a routine at sort of four or five so I hired I couldn't afford it so I hired a one-bedroom flat in Stoke Newington um Princess May Road it's called and Mm -hmm. uh I slept on the sofa because I didn't, I, I, I wanted her to be, I was quite strict with myself because it would have been really easy to just give in and molly coddle her mm. and just wrap her up in cotton wool. But I wanted her to be able to survive in the world. So I decided that she would not sleep in my bed. She would not sleep with me. She would have her own room and we'd start building, um, you know, boundaries for her. So I couldn't afford a two bedroom. So I slept on the sofa bed and she had the bedroom. Mm. Um, and we were there for a couple of years, but that was tough as well. Is this when you started? studying again. Yes, and I started studying again. And that was, I mean, it was wonderful because I didn't even know when I started looking in. So I, this was my second degree and I started looking into it. And there were the, I didn't know that universities repeated for the sort of older students, mature students, they repeated classes in the evenings where you could have a choice of when you went. So I would pack her up with her little Tommy Walkman and her music and her snack and she'd sit in the front row with me while I was in my lectures and she became you know the lecturers got to know her other people and they and suddenly that was an amazing network because I'd have study groups and they'd all come and play with her Mm. and they would then look after her so I could go and work at Pizza Express sometimes to earn money so I suddenly that was an amazing network that was the students were much younger than me but they were so supportive and full of energy. It was a really, sounds tough time, it was a really lovely time. I I found it incredibly joyous being a student for three years with her because she was with me. Well, I suppose as well you've got that sort of fizz of like 
independence, you've actually come through a lot of really difficult times already and you're now somewhere where there's hope and optimism. Yes, and I could also see that I was able, it was going to give me the ability to earn, to look after her, because I just decided, right, that's it, it's up to me. Mm. It wouldn't be up to a partner or anybody else. I had to get my, myself to a place where I could start a business. I'd already worked out that I couldn't work in a big organisation because I wouldn't have the flexibility to look after her. So, um, no, it, it gave me, I could see, you know, light at the end of the tunnel, as it were, at the end of the degree. I thought, I'm going to be able to do this. And this was a business degree that you were doing? Yeah, I was doing marketing in, in HR, yes. And I, was, and I was good at it and I was doing well and my lecturers were fantastic and I, I could, yeah, I could see light. Was she the only small person in the room? Or did yes. Anyone else? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she, she, the, the thing is, and that's when I discovered something about her that I hadn't realised, um, which is that her emotional intelligence is extraordinary. And so we'd have those study groups and some of the other students would come round and she'd go up and cuddle them if they were sad. And she'd say to me, um, you know, Helen's sad today. And I realised that she had the ability to pick up, which she still does now. Her emotional intelligence is off the charts. And so I, say, I discovered that she had different abilities. Mm. So they weren't necessarily academic, but she had the ability to feel when people were sad and needed a hug mm. or when she was just a carer. Yeah. This instant ability to care for people was something. When I started looking into emotional intelligence and I discovered, yes, a, a side of her which was extraordinarily powerful. Well, it sounds as well like sometimes you, the two of you are almost like this little team and you have to keep putting yourselves in situations and saying, right, where's her natural ability here and where if I just push it a little bit, can she actually excel? Like, yes, but, like with the feet on the Yes, no, but it's even things like I didn't know because I didn't have the access or the time actually to take her to see lots of specialists. So I knew I had worked out that music was a good therapy for her and so we worked on that. But then the whole thing about order mm. is that she was then getting older, seven or eight, but, you know, everything, so it doesn't matter how tired I was studying at night or whatever it was, I had to make sure that the bathroom, her bedroom, the fridge, anything, everything was in exactly the same place all the time. Wow, so that's a job in itself. And then she, she, <laughs> then she could get up and get herself breakfast mm. because the... Um, she couldn't work our problems. So that's the thing she still can't do. Her short-term memory, her long-term emotional memory is is extraordinary, better than any most people I know. But her short-term memory to work out a problem. So if something's not in the right place, how do you get it? How do you refill it? Those sorts of mm. simple everyday things she can't do. So everything has to be very ordered. Mm. Um, and that, yes, that was tough. But I, by accident, realized that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plushcare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. And did you feel like you had a lot of... I mean, if you're someone that's raising a child that has special needs like that, do you get to find a way to find other parents in the same situation, or is it quite a lonely path? It, in those days, it was, because people didn't talk about it. Um, uh, you know, they, people talked about children who looked as though they had special needs. So the difference was, if you could see a disability, people talked about it. But people didn't really think about, you know, what I call the invisible abilities. So the mental health or, you know, some sort of people who had starved of oxygen or the invisible disabilities, it's not something people really talked about or mm. actually acknowledged even. It's just that they were stupid or slow or, you know, the parents were exaggerating. You really didn't have the acknowledgement. Um, and, and so that was tough. That was pretty lonely. So it tended to be about physical disabilities. And, and she, again, picked that up. I, mean, mm. I remember years later when, the, do you remember the Olympics in London? There was the Paralympics, which was so extraordinary. Yeah. And she went with my elder brother and my sister-in-law and she came back and I was working that day. And I said to her, because I'd seen some of it on TV, and I'd said, isn't it extraordinary? Isn't it amazing, Luciana? And she looked at me and went, no. And I sort of said, Why? She said, and the same thing she said to me, because everyone sees that they're disabled, but nobody sees I'm disabled. So it's that sort of ability for her to just come out with something, which is extraordinary. And so she, she didn't have the same empathy or sympathy for those people, because she just felt, well, everyone's fussing over them. Mm. Um, so it, 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 it's easier now. But now we've almost gone the, un the other way because the spectrum has grown and grown. And now suddenly there's this massive spectrum of special needs and autism and, and it almost needs to be drawn back in again. Um, because I think the, the, the downside of the recognition is they're written off. Mm. And actually they have so much to offer. So I would love people to start talking about different abilities more because everybody is good at something. Everybody has something to offer. Mm. We just need to discover what it is. Yeah, no, that's, I think that's a really important point. And I think also what you're talking about with the sort of hidden, hidden disabilities and the idea of someone that looks like an adult, I mean, it makes me feel there must be so many times where, you know, what the pace of life is like and how people can be so impatient and they want to have that little fight with the person who's taking too long at the front of the queue or someone that's dawdling to pay a bill or you know, walk fast on the pavement and you don't really know what's going on with Well, this, she, she's experienced all of that in bullying and being pushed over and all that sort of thing. But then it crosses over to where we are today with, with, with mental health too because, you, you know, we are so focused on living life fast. And I think, again, it's probably a positive uh, for COVID is that we are being made to slow down. Mm. But I've always said to her and the other, uh, my other two children is, you know, is that thing, 
take three seconds, take three, give people the benefit of doubt. You don't know what they're going, you don't know what's going on behind someone's face. You don't know what they're experiencing, if they're sad, if they're feeling lonely, if you, know, you have to give people the benefit of the doubt and, and, and just be kind. And that's something I think we could all learn from because we don't know what's mm. going on. You don't know if someone is feeling a loss, if they're going through bereavement, if they're struggling just to get out of bed that morning. Yeah. And all those things I've lived with her for 32 years because she has, as you say, she, she is a fully grown adult. I mean, she, her, her father's blonde. She's really stunning looking. She, she looks like one of the uh, Gauguin paintings, actually. She, she's uh, absolutely gorgeous, but it's a child inside. And, um, you know, I've helped some of her friends as well growing up. There's this wonderful young man um, who is uh, Jamaican and he's six foot three. He's this gentle giant. He is, he's a child too. The number of times he's been arrested for just hanging out, uh, hanging around outside places, or whatever, because he's waiting for someone. Because people don't realise that he is that child and because he stumbles to talk. You know, he'll just get bungled into the back of a car and taken off to the police station. Mm. Um, but I, so I do think we have to take time to think and to empathise and yeah. to find out what's going on with other people. Yeah, and I think you're right that there, there are some elements of what's happened this year that have actually slightly shifted some of that thinking because people are aware that everybody's got a sort of story behind the day job or the, mm. the way you normally interact with them. And I know... Certainly from my own experience, there's been lots of times when uh, well, normally be quite a simple interaction with someone, maybe in a shop or something, ended up with people sort of sharing a little bit more about, you know, the fact that, you know, things have been tough or how the footfall's been in their shop that day or how they've been homeschooling their kids or whatever it is that's, you know, behind the scenes. And I think, I suppose it's because we've all been through something that is, there's nobody that hasn't been touched by what's been going on globally this year. I mean, which is pretty remarkable thing. To it, it, is, it is remarkable. And I think some of the trends... COVID's going to turn out, I think, to be a double-edged sword. I mean, there will be a price to pay, but there's there's so much that actually was happening before that we decided we shunned and we didn't really look at and face up to. Mm. And I think it's giving it... And that time to talk and time to think are the two things I think are going to be really positive Mm. that we're going to give ourselves, not just ourselves space, but we're going to give other people space too. Mm. Um, And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Um, so with Lucianne, how, how long were you um, like a single mum with, with her? Eight years. Eight years. So it was, yeah, <laughs> it was quite, because the other thing, the other thing I, I, you know, when you're trying to have a relationship and you say to somebody, um, I've got a child with special needs who is not going away, it's going to be with me probably till she's an adult. That's not always <laughs> something people want to take on. Um, and because she was, she, she needed a lot of my time. You know, it was a difficult thing. Mm. Well, also, presumably as well, makes you have to vet someone for that, that the ability to be patient and caring with all of that too. It makes you extra. You're not just protecting yourself yes. anymore. Yes, no, no, no. I was not. I, I, but then the, the flip side of that was a sense of guilt that I always had in the back of my mind because obviously I wanted her to be in a family, to have siblings, to have a father. You know, um, even though she had her father, she, you know, not in, in a day-to-day basis because he, he became sort of quite distant. But... Uh, Still had a relationship, but not a particularly close one. So that guilt was always there. Mm. You know, coming from a South American background, where we grew up huge family and, you know, we'd all sit together. I, there was always that sense of guilt that she didn't have that. And but that then, always played on, it, on me. But I suppose the other, the other side of it is it sounds like such a defining thing in terms of your work that 
you went back and did your degree and then having these part-time jobs. So yeah. what, when you came out the other side of getting the degree, obviously you, ha- you said you had this plan, okay, I want to start my own business, but what was the reality, the other side of the degree in terms of... So I, I didn't know what it would be, but in my, I was fortunate in that my final year, my, in doing my master's, my two lecturers were both lecturers but worked still as consultants. And so they invited me to do um, some work with them. They got a contract to do uh, an audit of financial services and marketing in the sector that wasn't working. Um, you know, it was the 90s, things were changing. And uh, I worked on that for my, dis- and they said they could be your dissertation. So I actually got paid for my dissertation, or some <laughs> of the work on it, but it was pretty good. Um, but also, I suddenly realized how um, far from understanding marketing that sector was. And the more I learned about financial services, the more I realized that actually it wasn't consumer focused, but yet it was such, a, such an important thing. What I've learned about myself through looking back, and I don't tend to look back, but writing the book, I was made to look back and I had to reflect. And what I've realized is I've been drawn to... Um, setting up businesses where I see a, uh, I suppose all people do with, with um, entrepreneurs, but I was drawn to a business where I could see that it wasn't um, satisfying a societal good. And for me, the way I see my world of investments and pensions and, and money is that it's about financial health. Mm. And if people don't have good products and don't have a good outcome, then they can't look after themselves and their families and their future. Mm. And there's nothing, there's nothing more inhumane to me. There's so many things, but one of the things I find very inhumane is the indignity of elderly people without money, without care, mm. without so much. And the whole point of our products that we sell is to give you the ability to do that, to look after your older self. Um, and that's not how the industry was set up. And when I would talk about things like that, when I did eventually set up my, my, I set up a consultancy. That was a bold thing to do. I remember saying to my brothers, right, I'm going to set up a marketing consultancy. They went, but you've just finished your degree. (laughs) And I said, well, I have a feeling I know more about marketing than some of the people. And I literally set up and within a year I had 12 clients, which was fabulous. So um, because I was trying to tell them about connecting with consumers, but I did have other people who said, you're talking a mum. I remember the phrase, you're like a mum and papa business. Nobody's going to take you seriously. You're so sort of soft things, woolly things you're talking about. Um, it's just not how you do business. It's not, you're not going to be successful. And again, I fast forward to COVID and I'm thinking, these are the things we're talking about now. And I feel so I can take a step back and sit back in my chair now because I've been fighting since 1996, which is when I set up my, my, that consultancy, about the idea of social good and a triple bottom line and not just pursuing profit, but planet and people. Mm. And I'm now thinking it's coming of age. So I can sit back because those conversations now are the right ones, I feel, as we go forward because we became greedy. And, yeah. uh, you know, so I, 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 I stuck... Because it was me and her and my overheads weren't that high, I didn't need to be successful straight away. Or I needed, for me, success was being able to look after her and myself Mm. um, and build it organically. So I was able to do that. And do you think that there's still a lot of um, sort of mystery for people quite often when it comes to sort of dealing with their finances in that way in terms of pensions and investments and things. Yes, think- absolutely. But part of it is the industry has done it on purpose. Because yes. you think about it, how can you justify all these lovely fees? And, you know, if you, if you speak in plain English, which we do, and you explain things, then people will think, well, maybe I'll do it myself. Mm. And, and I say to the industry, but yes, people will think that. 
but then they're busy doing their jobs. Yeah. So therefore, I mean, you could become a plumber, but you're not going to because you tend to have other things to do. Mm. So, you know, why use this mystery and pretend it's all a black box? It yeah. isn't actually. Because my view is if we made it more understandable and people trusted us, you'd actually end up getting more clients. Because the fact is, especially now looking forward post-COVID, no public purse is ever going to be able to look after the elderly in our population. We have to encourage people to look after themselves and to be prudent. So, you know, that's our social good. That's the thing we should be doing. And yet we're not producing... uh, language, education, literature that's explaining that to people. And I, I spend a lot of my time specifically speaking to women. Um, so I, I, I've set up clubs and networks and all sorts of things, trying to educate women about finance and about looking after their older selves because it's so, so important. Yeah, I mean, I wish someone had had that conversation with me. I mean, actually, maybe at school, I think they could start conversations yeah. about... So I, 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 yeah. I think there are a few groups um, who are doing things at school. But m- m- the research I've done is school's a little bit young because... People really come start, uh, youngsters start thinking about money at university. Mm. That's the first time they're really thinking, right, how does a budget work? And it's not about investments or pensions. It's things like, you know, what does loans mean? What is APR? What, you know, how does compounding, how does interest work? How does what's mortgage work? And I see it as uh, killing two birds with one stone if you start at university because people at university are likely to be the employees of the future so they can help their staff and look after their staff. But also they're the ones who can um, start saving younger as well. It's just the reality of it and they can take more responsibility. And also that first year of university, if you made it something really practical, it would give you so much confidence about money because unfortunately we don't have um, very monetary confidence in this country. No. Where people tend to, you talk about any of those subjects or you talk about math where people shy away and go, oh, you know, I don't well, know, I don't know. Of course, they would know. It's just it instantly puts a wall up. Um, and I think yeah. we need to bring that wall down. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that sounds a bit like, like me, really. I mean, I think, <laughs> and I think maybe not just at, at uni- I didn't actually go to university, but I think at that age. At that age. I it's, really it's, it's that age. Benefited. And my husband um, hides behind his hands when I do. Uh, there's a, a one presentation I do for the Women's Network. Um, it's called, uh, it's the ladies' uh, number one club. So it's right from, from John Smith's book. I thought I'd call it that. Uh, number one investment club. And, and so, uh, and, and I, I explained the stock market um, uh, like a wardrobe of clothes. Mm. And my husband absolutely hides behind his hands because he's our investment manager. And he goes, I can't believe you're just doing this. And it's, and I, but everyone gets it at the end say, of that. And everyone gets it. Yes. What's the aim here? Just to make it into practical terms. And actually, it makes it a lot less intimidating. And I think, you know, certainly when I was in my 20s and the first time I was having to deal with finances and planning and I was lucky enough to, you know, have a mortgage and um, going to meetings with my accountants. And I would just, I remember just sitting in the accountant meetings thinking, does my face look like (laughs) someone who's understanding? Am I nodding at the right places? Um, And then as a reflex, after every accountant meeting, I'd always feel like I had to go off to go and buy something silly, like go to Topshop and buy a dress or something, (laughs) just sort of like a purge of like having to think about money and practice. It was so weird. It was such a reflex thing, but... But it's even something simple (laughs) like that. So another example is that, so, you know, this whole idea of how fees work. And I say, could imagine if you went to Topshop and you bought that dress and it said Mm. on the ticket, um, 50 pounds, 
and you pay with your credit card. And when you got your credit card statement a month later, it said £80. You'd mm. be furious, wouldn't you? Because it was not what it said on the tin yeah. or on the ticket price. And that's how the whole world of investments and pensions works. Mm. Because the price you see is not the price you're going to pay. And when people realise that, I say, and then what you do is you say to them, no, don't tell me the ticket price. I want to know the true cost, what is going to come out of my bank account. And so it's, it's a question. So giving people the ability to not just understand, but ask the right questions is mm. so important. And that sort of thing, that it, it, it's not difficult to do. So by the time you met Alan and then you had your second and third baby, is this yeah. what you were doing? You were already running the... Yeah, I was already... So I met him, so I'd been going quite a few years and I was approached by his boss, who was a big wig in the city, who set up a new company. And he asked me to launch his new business. So I, I launched that in... 2002, I helped them. It was something called Newstar, and uh, Alan was the investment manager there. Um, and he always says, he, he saw, so he's such a wonderful man. He always says, I saw you and I couldn't move. This is what he always says. He Because he I came into the building, he said he just stood there for a few minutes and watched me walk across the floor. And it was just so, and then we didn't get together for years after that, but he sort of always remembers the first time he saw me. And he said, I fell in love with you then. And I, it's just such a wonderful thing to be told three is. years later. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I, that's where we met. And um, I, he also then laughs and says, and then we had our first date and you spent most of it telling me why we shouldn't have a date and why I shouldn't go out with you because you're really demanding, you're, you're really ambitious, you've got this daughter. And, I, and uh, so he calls it the so what dinner. Because he says, and then I just kept saying to you, so what? And you just kept going on and on about trying to put me off. (laughs) Well, I guess, you know, if you've been through ups and downs, but also have been learned how to be so independent and and fairly bulletproof with it, actually, like at the core of it, you and Lucianne, and then all this sort of stuff you set up for yourself. I mean, the fact that even when you said you first moved to London to wait to be with your brothers but up until then you hadn't really bothered them with what had been happening in Eastbourne these things it's quite it's very independent minded to sort of think I'll I'll focus on the things I can do that are practical for me and my daughter and I won't really burden anybody else as you would probably yes, see yes I, I felt it was a burden but I mean it, it, there, there's something that happened there before I met um, um, Alan that uh, so I that guilt of always being in the back of my mind of, of wanting to give her a family. So one of my um, clients uh, um, that I met was this incredibly charming Irishman, um, gift of the gab, just wonderfully, very religious, um, had three children, seemed to be the perfect man for me. He was caring, supportive, knew my world, knew the world of investments, um, uh, was very successful in his own right, um, And it seemed to me a ready-made family, but it was just, I connected with him, he connected with me, the children were adorable, I loved my, my, then became my stepchildren, the youngest was the same age as Lucianne, and everything seemed to be right time, right place, everything seemed to be, I'd use the word magical, because I'd been so focused on looking after myself and being independent, I hadn't given myself any room or space to be cared for. Um, and suddenly there's this person who was offering me everything. And so we, we got together. I moved out of London. I went to just outside Bath. We got married, and within two months, everything changed. And it turned out, long story short, uh, we stayed together a couple of years, but it turned out that he saw me as somebody he could own and break. Mm. And so he systematically set about destroying me two months after we got married. And I have no idea who I was. I lost all my confidence. I say... It, 
it got to the stage where I felt I was drowning. I had no idea who I was, what was real, what wasn't real. Um, I don't remember knowing anything about myself. Um, he was incredibly manipulative. He was he, he cut off all my friends, all my family, systematically. It was almost a... He, he, later on, when, we, when, when I went to the police and, and I got away because it became very physical, um, he said to the police, I remember him telling them that, that I deserved it because I, I didn't, I was too, the word he used was, I was too argumentative, that I wanted my own way and that's not women, what women should have. And I remembered thinking at the time, so why did you actually, you know, why did we ever come together as a couple? Mm. But I've learned now, 16 years ago, and I do a lot of work um, dealing with uh, domestic violence, do, uh, coercive behavior, is that for some men, you're a challenge. So bright, independent, supposedly women, strong women, because there's this taboo, this thinking that only weak women suffer from oh, domestic yeah, no, violence. I know that's not the case. Um, it's that uh, for a lot of the women I've now spoken to who've been in su survivor as I am, they say it's because you're a challenge. There's something about you that they want to break and own. So it, it becomes almost a, a game to them. And so when, when, I mean, two years, that was... I can't, I think it took me probably 12 years to get over those two years. And so it was a very gentle thing when I met Alan. It, was, it took a long time for me to trust anybody else, but I instinctively knew he was different. But what I, what I discovered from that relationship and that, that marriage was that I couldn't trust anybody ever again. And I think that was the thing when I, that what so dinner, what else dinner with Alan, as I said to him straight, for, straight forward, I said to him, I'm so sorry, but I can never love you. 100%, because I'm incapable of doing that. The fact I've survived means that I would never be that honest with anybody again. Mm. And I think that's one of the scars. You know, I always, uh, I try to talk to um, survivors. I say, you, you were a beautiful vase. You still are a beautiful vase. But when you're broken and put back together, there's always scars there. And that's what it's like. You mm. always have the scars. And so there's always this, you know, self-preservation there because you've survived. Um, and uh, that means that you never truly give the same way again to somebody else. And that's terrible for good people. I mean, you know, I, I apologize even now to Alan. We've been together, um, you know, 15 years. And I say I still apologize to him for not loving him the way I think he deserves to be loved. That's interesting, though, because I wonder to what extent you can ever really have control over that. I mean, if you have a... A happy and loving. I understand that if you've been in a controlling relationship, um, the way you've learnt what love looks like during that time is ugly and wrong, and that's not that's not what love should how it should be in your life. And I know, I know when you meet someone new and they treat you so much better and give you freedom to be yourself and respect and love in its proper sense, it takes a little while to to learn that language again. But can you really maintain that distance from someone if they are a good person? It, it gets, it, over time, you get closer and closer. Um, but every so often, I'll still have a nightmare or he'll say something and I'll have a flashback. Mm. And he doesn't mean to, or somebody else doesn't mean to. And actually, in the last four years, what has really been difficult for me, particularly going through all the abuse and threats I've had since... Um, you know, my core cases is that some of the language abusers are using, he used. And so I'm realizing now he was also um, a racist as well. So he saw me as be he needed to own me because I was 
and I've since learned that this is how weird it is, is that he actually did become join a right-wing party after we split up, is that he felt that I, I was using my voice, but it wasn't my place. Um, so the, it was really, it, it, there's so much wound up in that whole, in that relationship. But uh, that's brought back some of the memories because I'd managed to, uh, Alan and our relationships managed to heal that. Mm. But now I still have some flashbacks because of the things I'm told about, you know, um, the rape threats, all the, the all, all, a lot of the things that it's a language he used, which is, which I thought I'd gotten over. And, and that's the thing, you never know when something will take you back to that place. Yeah, I I can't even imagine how hard that must be. And so you now have two children. With, I have two. Right. Yeah. So one of the things. Yeah, two teenagers. Yeah. I, no, I said to Alan, I said because uh, he was so longing to be a father, he he didn't have children. Um, and I sort of said to him, <laughs> I think I'm too old now to have any more. Um, you know, I was told, you know, late forties, it's difficult, and I didn't want to do IVF or anything like that. So we had started. Um, you know, there's a film um, with, with Hugh, Hugh Laurie, I think it is, where they maybe baby, where they jump on the bike. That was us. We were <laughs> we were we were trying everything, and I was phoning him at work. We were literally, and I opened the side drawer to the bed one day, and I saw all these charts and thermometers, <laughs> and, and I, we we changed our diets, and I was um, I went to shiatsu. I was having baths in herbs. I was trying everything to get pregnant naturally, and I got so fed up after. I said to him. Should we just nip to Paris? So we, we so went off to Paris for the weekend and ate all the things and drank all the things we shouldn't have been. We, you know, diet went out the window, all the rest of it. We came back pregnant. <laughs> so the moral of this story No, 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 no. Is. But it's also, I think it's a mental thing. If you worry so much and you're, you almost become sort of slightly obsessed with it. And I think that inhibits you. as, as a, so, so we fell pregnant with, with our son and uh, I was just so happy. Had him... Fed him till he was eight months old. And then a, a month later, I said to, to the gynecologist, my gynecologist, I said, oh, I'm pregnant again. And he went, no, Gina, you're not. It's the hormones coming down from you stopping breastfeeding. I went, I'm telling you, I'm pregnant. He went, so I went in, did the test with him. I was pregnant. He said, don't ever tell any of my patients this. <laughs> so, yeah, there's only... Um, nine ten months between them so we then had and that was extraordinarily difficult and tested us as a couple because um so lana uh, who's now 13 she was showing all the signs of complex special needs she was uh yeah we were we were advised when she was 24 weeks to abort but i um uh, my mother was even reminding uh, trying to push me to do it because my mother was saying to me you've been through this once you can't go through this again um but Alan was kind and he and he and I both agreed we were in a different place. We were fortunate enough, we had the money, we could care for her, you know, we could find whatever care. And I just, feeling her kicking, I just couldn't. There was absolutely no way I could do that. Um, so we had her and uh, she is, she has an impure, impaired immune system, she has asthma. Um, but apart from that, she's perfectly fine. You know, I have to be very careful with her through COVID. You know, I took her out of school in February because she has a very, her immune markers, they're called in her body or in their thousands. So, but apart from that, she is feisty, funny, and absolutely wonderful with her brother. They're like an old married couple, the two of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and presumably Luciana has been living up until, you said, last year? She Yeah, so, so we, she was just, she was just getting to the stage because... The other thing that happened with all the threats and everything that I was getting is my own mortality really started weighing on my mind. I started writing letters to them. 
and all that sort of thing. And I thought she needs to be in an accommodation. She needs to be cared for. Because I, Luca, who's um, 15, he got very angry with me because I had this conversation with the whole family. And he said, no, 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 I'm going to care for her. And I said, no, it's not your responsibility. Of course, you're going to care for her and love her. But you, she can't live with you. You need to have your own life. Mm. Um, so the two kids were not happy with me going down this path. Um, but they understood in the end. So we started looking for assisted accommodation for her and found it just before lockdown. Wow. So she was really excited about going and living with somebody who, there's three of them in the house, but somebody who is a, who's a, a musician. Um, and so that he's got severe special needs, but he's an amazing, talented musician. So they, and we put up all the staff, we had everything ready, and then lockdown happened the week after. So I brought, had to bring her back home because I couldn't see her. The support bubble, there was no such thing in the first lockdown. And uh, she reacted dreadfully. She thought I was telling her off, that she'd done something wrong. Remember, she's an adult now. She ha- she's yeah. physically an adult, but this child, and she just started hitting out, slamming doors, breaking things, just getting very, very angry, and then taking it out on her brother and sister. She was pinching them. She, was, she, just, failed. she just couldn't understand why she couldn't go to her new house because we'd put the bedroom together. She'd all have, obsessed with pink and fluffy things, so she, did, she, she just couldn't understand why she couldn't be there. Mm. Um, and then all her clubs that she goes to that keeps her sort of mentally and physically well, there was, they'd all shut. So she couldn't go to her art club. She couldn't go to her dance club. She couldn't do anything. She didn't understand Zoom. She felt that was horrible. Why can I see people, but I can't go and see them? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I know lockdown has been terrible for lots of carers of people with special needs because all the support went. Yeah. Um, so she went back in in July. And, you know, now we have to consider what happens if we go into another lockdown. But uh, She's a support bubble and we are, so we can, I can still see her. Yeah, it's just hard. To, how do you explain to someone that doesn't, you know, that has special needs, what's going on at the moment? It's, it's such an abstract thing even for people that do get their head around it. It's, it's, a lot of it's quite abstract. It's quite, it was quite extraordinary, though, because she was also, at the same time, she would watch the daily briefings with me. Mm. And sometimes she would say to me things like, but they're not telling me the truth her as though she, they were talking to her mm. and I said what do you mean she said well look at their eyes and so she she, wow. she but that's how she could she she literally looks at people's eyes she's obsessed with looking at people's eyes and so she would tell me things like that and I'm sitting there going okay you really need to be in that room <laughs> I feel like I, I need I Luciana wish, and lots I know, of I was gonna, oh my gosh she's extraordinary <laughs> like, she's, turned ab- the end, like, she's how- absolutely <laughs> extraordinary <laughs> yeah um she she has she has done some extraordinary things she's been able to tell a girlfriend of mine who had cancer that she had cancer um, she's able to identify somebody who was, funny enough, also um, abusing his wife. She knew when she met him. And somebody I'd worked with for years and years, and she'd never met him. He came for a party at home, um, pre-lockdown, a couple of years ago, and she just wouldn't, and I said to her, you know, say hello, because she'd always come around and, you know, mm. say hello to everybody. And she just hid behind me and wouldn't say hello. And she just kept saying, whispering in my ear, bad man, bad man, mum. And, and later on, I asked her when, when, he, when everyone left, and she and she said because he's not kind to to ladies, and I just she just has this. This is the thing. Her the emotional ability is extraordinary. It mm. is absolutely extraordinary. Her ability to read people because the thing is, if you think back, we are animals. We give off signals. We mm. give off signs. And there's something in her ability, and it's not just her. There's some you know people with special ability, uh, special needs. They can. They seem to part of their brain. They're they're able to tune in to those animal instincts and to read 
people. Mm. Well, I guess as well, they're not looking at the other signals that we will give no, each other. No, they're not socialised like us. Exactly. So they're looking at something completely different. Something completely different. Um, so we haven't really spoken about it yet, but you've <laughs> sort of alluded to, you know, death threats and um, abuse that you faced, but all because of what happened when you took on the government yep. with Brexit. So what was the thing just before that that started? That was just a sense of unfairness about what you were no, saying? No, because, because of my background of always being obsessed with government and parliament politics, I always have been. So I, my first march I went to was the, um, against Blair, was the Iraq war. Mm. So I was on that march. I felt that was wrong. And I thought the powers he was using were wrong. So one of my hobbies, as I call it, is I, I read Hansard. I've been looking at the uh, debates in parliament. You know, I'm to go to sleep. Yeah, I read about the most boring things. You can imagine <laughs> Hansard to go to sleep is me at bedtime, which is a bit, uh, yes, curious. Um, but so I realised in the Hansard Society, there's a group of us who are really getting concerned, the politicians, because we're only one of three countries which doesn't have a written constitution, which means that you can push the boundaries. And so in 2014, 2015, when I was becoming more and more alarmed and more and more activist and more and more uh, working with other, collaborative with other people, we discovered that in that one year, they had used Henry VIII powers, so these ancient powers, 90-odd times. And that means, you see, I've always seen politics as about policies, and policies is how we live our lives. It's mm. actually about our lives every single day. Yeah. So it's, not, it's not something abstract or happens in a building in, in you know, the middle of London. And so when um, Mrs May talked about using the triggering Article 50 with, Henry, with royal prerogative, I actually knew what it meant. Mm. And I was alarmed um, because I, because the way, if you don't have a written constitution, things are set by precedent. So if one prime minister does it, then other prime ministers could do it in the future. Yeah. And that would completely change our system. And they wouldn't be answerable to anybody, not even parliament. They could literally just, you know, if you think about that it, it, against the backdrop of what's going on at the moment, because the COVID, this government, actually, the MPs nodded through, they have a lot of these powers now, so they can yeah. do more or less what they want. But, you know, we, we're going to have to try and find the redress at some point. But for me, it was ensuring that parliament was sovereign. And I was naive, so naive, because the threat, it was a very febrile environment, but I persuaded my legal team, because they had already started getting abuse, I persuaded them that this was such a simple case that, you know, we were defending Parliament, we were sovereign. Even the people who didn't disagree with me on Brexit say, yeah. would actually support me because it's yeah. a thing they've been talking about. So I thought I'd be, I put my head above the parapet, lots of other people would join. So I was so naive. I thought academics, business people, other politicians, cross-party... I never thought I was going to be on my own. Mm. I thought I was going to look around and be lots of people supporting me. Yeah. So I think what happened was when people started seeing the abuse I got, it put them off. Even really good people just said to me quietly, Gina, we wish you the best, but we can't be supporting you. We can't be seen to support you. And so I had to draw on my strength. And I think everything I'd been through, I'm quite a fatalist. And I remember the meeting when my lawyer said, right, what do we do? Because there were supposed to be two other two men who were going to join me, especially financially. Um, and they couldn't. Uh, and it was the right thing that they couldn't because I think they were very well known. Their families, their businesses, everything would have been uh, pillarized. So I said, when they asked uh, me, what do we want to do? And it was that point. It was, it was, to me, it was no choice. Is either I don't do it and nobody does it, mm. and this changes our entire country, or I'm going to do it. And I said, you know what? I said, the things I've been through in my life, this is my conversation to, to the lawyers, I said, the things I've been through in, the life, in my life, 
nothing's going to dent me. They can throw whatever they want at me. Again, being naive and not thinking what was going to come was going to come. And so I said, right, we're going to go for it. And so it, it was... It then revealed a whole different... I never, ever, when I had that conversation, that two-hour meeting with my lawyers, my legal team, I never foresaw a future in which I'd be looked after by a terrorism squad. We'd have 20-odd alarms around our uh, house. We couldn't go out anymore. I don't go out with my children because I was worried about if anything happened to me, that people would be taking out, um, you know, uh, raising money to have me killed that I'd, I could deal with all of that. I did deal with it. There are many days I went home and cried because it was so, it was a lot to deal with, but yeah. I felt I could. What I, what I couldn't deal with, and I had to have help with my family and people to support, is when it was my children. So to get a letter, because it wasn't just online, to get a letter saying, we know where your, ch- where your children go to school, they'll be taken. And me not knowing if that's true or not, or other letters saying, oh, we've discovered that your husband is, um, we've discovered that your uh, husband's Jewish and you're ethnic, so your children are Mongols, they sh- we're going to put them down. And that's a whole different emotive sort of roller coaster and tsunami of emotions that comes to you because then how do you look after your children? Mm. And so we just stopped going out. We stopped. For three years, we lived in a very different life. We, we sort of, I say in an odd way, lockdown is a relief to us because <laughs> I can go out in a mask and I can sort of wear sunglasses and we can, we don't go and other people are distracted. And, yeah. you know, it's in an odd way. The three years, this last year has been easier for us than the last three years. So I never envisaged any of that. Well, I mean, listening to, to the sort of big sort of life events with uh, having your first daughter and feeling on your own in that and then your very traumatic second marriage and feeling very alone in that and then again with Brexit and sort of it feels like there's been these times in your life where you've sort of like when you said you thought you'd look around loads of people yes do you think that with with the Brexit um, campaign people didn't understand what it was you were doing and that's why they were yes no no I think it well it became the the governments uh, and politicians politicized it and they were never Mm. talking about the constitution even when I brought my second case you know we had a prime minister who lied to the queen Mm. and yet it was about Brexit so I and it was so tough it got to the point where I stopped because everyone kept calling it the Brexit case I was going but it's got absolutely nothing to do with Brexit because I win, it goes to Parliament and it goes through. So how have I stopped Brexit? Nothing yeah. I did ever stopped Brexit. So actually, I was very specific to my legal team and I said it must never delay it either. So we, we always worked to timetables. We yeah. met the government's timetable, which meant that we had juniors sleeping on the floor in their offices, working weekends, working all night. I mean, the teams were absolutely incredible. Because yeah. normally it's sort of a case that, you know, the thing that gives me pride is when I think, you know, this woman who should have shut up and not had a voice... I won the two biggest constitutional cases for 400 years. I mean, that, that's pretty, you know, does make me smile yeah. to myself and, uh, you it's know, and, and, my, and my children and, you know, and, but they know what I do. But then I put it aside and there's so much more to do now. But um, I think that's the fatalistic, I, I almost feel it, yes, it should have been me and it was going to be me because A, I was strong enough that nobody's ever going to tell me what to do or where to be or what to say ever again or silent, try and silence me, but also because I can be independent and I do have the strength to... Um, it's not about bravery or courage or any of those things because I think if you shut yourself off and you, you become strong, you actually are a lesser person. I stay soft and I 
feel things. And as I say, I cry and I'll get upset and I'll write letters and, you know, to my children, whatever it is I do, I still try to be, um, feel all my emotions, but mm. I, I work through them. And that's what I've found I can do, even when I'm on my own. It's a slightly selfish thing to do, because when you're on your own and you you can work through your own emotions, you're not listening to other people's voices. You can listen to your own voice and you can figure out what you can put up with, what you can't put up with, when you need to stop. Um, and that's the hardest thing, actually, to listen to your voices saying, stop, look after yourself now, because you need to be strong tomorrow. Mm. Um, because we, we think we have to be strong all the time or, or you know, go all the time. So I've... Those periods, I've, I've discovered that I actually quite like my own company and I, and, um, and I listen to my own voice. And, and I do, and, and when I say I listen to my voice, I listen to my voice um, through the echoes of my parents. My parents still have a huge influence mm. in me. And one of the things I try and do with my children is I, I don't, I, I, I don't, they don't know an airbrush version of me. They know everything about me, warts and all. Um, and I talk to them about why I'm doing something, my thought process of why I'm doing it and what I'm feeling. Because I think it will help them understand who they are because they're part of me. Mm. So I try to get them to, to, for them to see the real me all the time. Um, yeah. And, and so that, that helps them and it helps me too. And do you think that your children, because it sounded from what I was reading before that your kids, in particular Luca, was actually very much watching what was happening with... Uh, Brexit and the referendum and all these things. It felt like he was very sort of tied into you know the news and was very upset and distressed when um, you know leave was announced and and I suppose it's about their future too. I mean, do you think? Well, remember, remember the schools were doing mock referendums. They were doing debates. Yeah. It was really something. I think this is That's the thing. Secondary schools yeah, yeah. A lot of the secondary schools were, and I think a lot of parents don't realise how engaged and how upset the young people were because they were talking about these things. Yeah. Um, and they were getting pretty vocal about it, and they were pretty indignant as well because you know at school they're being taught to look at facts and to learn things, and they were learning things in school, and then they were hearing what the politicians were saying. And unfortunately, the legacy of that period is we have a generation like him who don't trust politicians. Mm. They only see them as people who make things up and so their trust in our political system is quite different from when we were growing up and that's something i don't think under, uh, politicians in the future are going to have to work really hard to restore trust in that generation in those you know the four years when those secondary school students because they don't feel that yeah and what they now have is when i move around especially when i'm talking to kids now and i spend a lot of time talking to universities and, and uh sixth formers still now i still do a lot of zoom events with them um is that this indignation, because with Black Lives Matter, they won't put up with it. They have a real sense of indignation that we're not going to put up with lies. We're not going to put up with um, uh, racism. We're not going to put up with climate denial. You know, they have a very much more heightened sense. Whereas when we were fighting and I was demonstrating against Iraq, you know, we were demonstrating. We were going to try and change things a little. They don't see things as being changed a little. They want to change everything. Yeah. And um, I think that's brilliant. Yeah, um, so but, but, but there is that, people forgot that they were learning, they were hearing all this stuff. They, yeah. they didn't exist in a different world. So, of course, he knew my thinking and what I felt, um, you know, is that we stay and we have a stronger voice and that, yes, there are things that are right and wrong. Because I, I try and tell them all the time, everything you hear, see, um, outside school, wherever, don't ever be 
black and white in things. Nothing in life is black and white. You have to always, it's a phrase I use with them and uh, is, is, you know, and I, I try and teach people this idea of prismatic thinking. You, you hold it up and you look at it from all angles mm. um, because then that will give you the true light on an issue. And so I say that to them, you know, it, nothing is black and white. Everything has nuances and you have to try and figure out your way through them. Yeah, and actually, I, I remember when, when uh, the referendum did happen, there were two things I felt really overwhelmingly the first one was I thought I must make sure my kids are engaged in politics because you have to know what's going on. And like you, I feel that politics is not something that happens over in Parliament, but it's everything in how your everything. life in our society is. But the other thing I felt was that because everybody became about whether they would leave or remain, it was incredibly binary. Mm. And if you were on whichever yeah, side you were right. on, you felt you were right and the other people were wrong. And I thought for how society needs to function, that's so dangerous because no matter what, we've all got to rub alongside each other. And if you vote leave, the one thing you know that's true is that you're not happy with the way things are. And if you're living the life you want to leave in somewhere like London, which would mainly mm-hmm. remain, it's not the same as growing up somewhere on, you know, some town but, somewhere But the else thing is, it's, no we, we're, still, we're still living through it because the, the politics of division actually serves the politicians. And mm. this is the thing. It... it, it yeah, I mean, we're seeing it in America. We're seeing it through wiping through the modern Western world. Is this? They are, politicians are promoting that that nuance, mm-hmm. that that sort of black and white way of looking at things, because then it's easier for them to message to their followers, if you like, because they don't see them as voters; they're followers. Mm. It's quite interesting. It's got quite a few of the uh, edges of almost cultish type behaviour. So you indoctrinate people with with a certain thinking and othering of others. And we've seen it in history, because my other thing is I'm a bit of a history, not a bit, I'm very much a history geek. And uh, I think, you know, we are seeing echoes of the past. And, uh, you know, these are not, these are not, the rules they're following. There's, if you could write a Janet and John book of how do you actually move politics to the right, we're going through it. Mm. And on top of that, you know, you have a, a, turbo, a turbocharged method, which is the internet and social media, to spread those messages. You know, we've never had that in history. Mm. So you've got a turbocharged way of spreading a different ideology, a different uh, truth, a different um, uh, alternative narrative. Mm. And in you see, I don't believe that there's ever been um, a society that's never had uh, sort of on the edges of it people who um, are voices of hate and dissenting and, and, and intolerance. But what happened is we became civilized and we said that those are intolerant voices, so we sort of pushed them to the edges of mm. society. What's happened with the politics and, and social media and everything we have and, and certain media is that they're giving oxygen to those people. So now they think they're mainstream. So suddenly the voices we always look down on as being, you know, those that weren't promoting a healthy society are now the ones in the center talking about their view of society and the rest of us are unhealthy. So it's, it's the dynamics have completely changed and we've got to re recalibrate it so that we're back to those voices that destructive are on the outside and the ones that are looking out for each other and for us together because this is the thing. I mean, I spent again when I said I go and speak to people who disagree with me. Um, I spent both my summers in 2016 and 2017, actually, and 2018, all three of them, my poor children and my husband, going around to leave areas. So I traveled around a lot of leave areas to go and talk to people. Mm. Um, there was one occasion where I went to a town hall and they, they knew I was coming. So we don't advertise it way ahead. So I went in and there's about 80 people. Majority, uh, certain age, middle aged and upwards, white male. And so I went in, had a little coffee table and a chair and a glass of water. And I came on and the booing started and the swearing and the, you know, go back home and all the rest of it. Wow, and I'm so shocked. I sat... 
no, no, no. So I, I was expecting it. So I sat down um, and I sipped my glass of water and I sort of didn't really react when they carried on. And after about however many minutes, I said, well, I'm not going anywhere. Um, so do you want to stop shouting and we'll talk or do you want to carry on? Because at some point you're going to get exhausted because I'm not going anywhere. And after a good few minutes, they sort of, some of them sort of said to the others, oh, quiet now, quiet now. And they started really aggressive questions. But I always answer the questions mm. um, and I'd be as honest as I can. And at the end, when I was leaving, this group of the ones who were really being aggressive at the front, he came up and he said, thank you for coming. He said, I've never stopped to think of what I was saying. And it was just, I spent my whole time telling them that we were the same, that they were worried about their children. I was worried about my children. They were worried about what's happening in the NHS. I was worried. They were yeah. actually, if you put on a piece of paper all the things that made us the same, it would cover pages and pages. And you might have one side of A4 of the things, or even half the side of A4 that yeah. made us different or we thought differently. But nobody talked to them. And, so I, and I still do that now. I mean, I met one of my worst trolls for a documentary on BBC and... Uh, for him and he was the same he had a 14 year old son we talked he said I hated you I saw the headlines I was part of a group we were going to try and kill you and he said but I never thought that you were real which is an interesting thing because he said he never thought I was real yeah and so there's, that's why I think we do have to I know and, and I'm afraid people on our side of the argument perhaps have, have fallen out with me too recently because I'm saying we're all leavers we have to we hurt each other if we don't get this right, whatever happens next. Yeah. It's you can't, you, you know, that old saying, you can't, you know, spilt milk, or you can't do anything about it. We have to find a way forwards together. Absolutely, yeah. And so, but there's still some people who are still stuck in that, you know, still fighting, but there's no war. That war is not over. There's a different war yeah. now, which is let's try and get the best we can get so we move forward and we can survive as a country, for God's sake. We all have to survive. Exactly. Well, that goes back to the Joe Cox thing of look what, for what unites us, not that which divides. Oh, yes. We have to, we have to. And also it, with COVID and everything else that's coming down the line, because you know, if you read, because I read on the investment side, so I'm not looking at the newspapers. My team, we're looking at all the data because it's what we do and we have access to it. So we're looking at all the scientific and the medical data all the time. You know, I said to the children the other day, again, we were talking about the vaccine. I said, well, SARS was 18 years ago and we don't have a vaccine for that yet. And COVID is a type of SARS. So... There's no real guarantee we're getting a vaccine, yet it's the thing everyone's being promised. So I said, you know, we need to live with the reality that, um, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be tough for a while. So we've got to try and make, find ways of making life joyous again. Mm. We have to be real. We have to be real about what's coming down the line, economically, socially, health-wise. You know, we've got to. We've got to have honest conversations about the future. Yeah. Do you think that the things you, you've been doing with your activism would be the things you would do regardless of having raising children or do you think they've played quite a big part in what's motivated you? Well, with Lucianne, it started me off. I mean, I, I was doing a, f a few things before and I have done other things that are not to do with them. So, I mean, I, I worked on the... Uh, Al and I were the funders of... And I helped write the report that became the Modern Day Slavery Act. Um, and so I've been, you know... And, and the city is nothing to do with them. So that's that's different. And my business, I always had a mindset because, again, I, I grew up in, in a third world country or in a British colony learning about people like Dickens and the, um, you know, Cadbury brothers. I learned, I read all about the Victorian philanthropists. And to me, 
that was my sense of how businesses should be. Um, and you know, if you think about it, going back to my sector, I work in financial services and banking and, and investments. It's, it was started by Quakers who wanted to do better, give people the ability to look after themselves and to have money put away to look after themselves and their families. So it came from a sense of responsibility, not from a sense of profit. Mm. And so I've always seen that as how business should be. So whenever I've come you know, in my business dealings, I've seen the opportunity to do that. I would campaign for that. So, so there's two sides, I think. There's my, the way we live, we live our lives, but the way we look after our money, they're, they're, those are different things. So it, it's my professional and my personal life that I've, I've sort of, if I can speak up, I will. Hmm. And it sounds like in this year with working more from home, it's something that your kids are quite interested in anyway. And your youngest son and daughter take an active sort of interest. Yeah, in but things. they do. But then again, it's what they're learning at school. I mean, mm. you know, they, they're learning so much about, you know, they don't learn geography the way we learn geography at school. They see it through the lens of climate change. Mm. Um, they're, not, they're looking at agriculture through the lens of the fact that we may not have enough food in the future. You know, there is a very social dimension to the way education is being taught, which I think is brilliant. I actually don't think it's going far enough. Mm. I think we ought to teach philosophy and ethics and all these other things as well. Um, but they have, education has come a long way. Um, but the only, the only thing I worry about in, in the education that they have access to is that um, a lot of their peers have, are, are in a bubble, a, uh, a privileged bubble, where they don't have enough of an understanding of what people, ordinary people's lives alike which is why for me I took them up to all the areas so when we went to um you know North Wales and when we went to Minehead or whatever I take them with me mm. all the time because I want them to experience that their you know I don't want them to grow up thinking that their life is what everybody else has mm. they're fortunate to have the life they have but I want them to be mindful I have to say I was very I'm probably a terrible parent for their schools because the, when my daughter went to the secondary school, we got this letter saying that they were going to do mindfulness lessons. It's just me saying the word reminded <laughs> me. And I, she, so I said to her after her first couple of lessons, so what did you learn in mindfulness? So she told me, and I sort of wrote a letter to the school and saying, um, Lana won't be going to mindfulness lessons anymore because the only mindfulness I want her to learn is to be mindful of others. And so... <laughs> I just said that was it because she kept coming up telling me about you know I must listen to my I, it was all about her and I had actually and uh, and she had then started using language which I still now I feel very um, worried about she kept saying she was depressed and you know they're learning language of illness and I was saying no you're just sad or you're disappointed or I've just told you off for something so you're angry you're not depressed mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's sort of you know I, I try and ground them but I do worry that slightly of the education we are sort of giving them language which is know. positive but I also I got told off about that when I was a teenager as well I remember coming to the kitchen and, oh I'm so depressed and my stepmom going no you're not <laughs> I just remember really clearly like being pulled up and I was like but everybody says depressed you yeah know? But, but, but they're <laughs> learning even more language about it and I think you know and, but, but whichever way but I just wanted them to know that I just want them to feel grounded yeah and, and to be you know to go out so instead of doing for example after club you know the TA that I said to Luke I said look what do you want to do and he said no actually I'd like to go and teach reading to one of the disadvantaged schools in the area so they both have I mean they're, they're my children I think yeah, they, are, they? they are um he he she she's she's gonna be terrifying um she's gonna I mean I honestly if she ever becomes a judge or a, um, a prison warden watch out I mean she's going to be absolutely terrifying but he is he is has an incredible aura and kindness about him I and mean, he's a real peacemaker and it's just something about him 
Yeah. Well, uh, do you have more things in your sights, or do you think that you f- do you feel the other side of everything that happened with the sort of abuse that came alongside um, taking the government to court? Do you feel that that's in the past more now? No, no, I don't. And I have to, I have to find something positive to do with all of that negativity. So I'm pushing for an online harms bill because we cannot allow these spaces. Online has now become a place where women are not safe and it's a growth of misogyny and racism and hatred. And uh, there has to be, you know, uh, the people who own these platforms are becoming billionaires with impunity. Mm. Um, so I'm pushing and I'm lobbying for a regulator and an online harms bill to come to Parliament uh, next year. There's a white paper and they're pushing it back to 2024. And I think that's not good enough. No, it's not. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of lobbying the other way saying it's closing down freedom of speech. I'm sorry, it's got nothing to do with freedom of speech. But even, but it's not just about hate. It's um, also because crime is moving online. So it's a lot of trafficking, money laundering on on supposed crowdfunding platforms. There's a lot more Mm -hmm. um, money laundering stuff. There's a lot of of, of bad... Bad stuff is moving online. So crime is moving online. And so this is about encompassing all of that. Um, So, no, no, I'm absolutely pushing for that. And it's got to be a big, big part. And then in my world in financial services, I'm concerned that when we leave with no deal or a paper thin deal, whichever one it is, that... A lot of the work, not just myself, you know, we, we've spent, um, we've been campaigning and changed legislation to protect consumers here since the last financial crisis. That was my point at which I really pushed forward to, for change. All of that's going to be rolled back because most of the changes we got through were through EU directives. So I'm really concerned of what's going to happen to the world of investments and pensions in the future, mm. that consumers are going to be missold again. And we're just going to go back 20 years. So that those are the two things that I'm really going to push for. Mm. Um, next year. Well, I think the, the, the idea of people being able to look after themselves in that old age and the looking at the way that online, um, you know, hate speech and these things are patrolled is a really important thing. I think I would I would definitely sign up to anything that would encourage there to be some kind of um, platform that can regulate what's allowed online. It's, it's oh, absolutely because the excuses that the platforms are giving is that they don't have the technology to do it, but they yeah. have the technology to follow you on just about. Every single no. thing. Of course, they do. They just take. The, they just take. Their yeah, hands yeah away. but it's because they have no, no. There's no fiduciary or regulatory or legislative um, burden on them. No, so nothing. N- none at all. They're not required. I mean, to I, mean I, I mean, for me personally, I can stand up and say this because up until so I was thinking about it anyway. But then during lockdown, something happened, which was that in October last year, I didn't know this, but some a general member of the public sent me a screenshot of a platform called GoFundMe. Mm. that had for five months a headline which read raising £10,000 to hire a hitman to kill Gina Miller. And it was up for five months. And so I sent it to my team, the police. They contacted GoFundMe and they said they couldn't release the data for this, that and the other money. I mean, honestly. They wouldn't release the data? No, no, no. It took them months. We finally got all the information. It turned out it was a, a gentleman in, in Newcastle. So we went into lockdown. They got, the police got the information in February, bearing in mind we, we'd found out about it in October. GoFundMe, the chief exec in LA, sent me an email saying, oh, we're really sorry that this has happened. Won't happen again. What? Okay. Um, so we went into lockdown. We knew that the CPS had got it. The, 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 he was going to be charged with um, uh, threat to kill. I didn't know if the case was going to go up. In lockdown, it was heard. Mm. I then got a letter in um, July saying that he'd been charged with a much lesser charge of malicious communications. 
and he'd got £200 fine for causing me distress, which is less than you get for most motoring offences. Wow. And he didn't go to jail, whereas the Viscount, who'd done the same thing on Facebook, but for half the money, £5,000, went to jail, you know, two years before. So I thought, this is extraordinary. So they have absolutely no algorithms, because those are every word you could possibly have got in a headline. Um, My name triggers all sorts of things as well, but... So they have, and they had to admit there's no algorithms. So these people, so them saying that they've got stuff they're looking at, they don't. It's mm. extraordinary for anything like that. And then we, know, then we found out, so when I was looking into all of this and talking to the police, the police are saying crime is moving. They're the ones who told me this. They said crime is moving online. We don't have the resources. They keep putting police in the wrong place. We need to have the resources to combat online crime. And we don't have the regulation, we don't have the funding, and we really, really need it. Wow. So, I've, so we've got to help them do it. And how aware are your children of that kind of thing happening? Oh, no, well, I showed it to them. They, they, I mean, they know, and, and also things like uh, we've had, Lucianne's been groomed on Facebook and the whole different story, oh. but when she was nearly taken because somebody pretending to be uh, somebody else with special needs, because she had put in at college, she was doing a life skill course, she'd put she had special needs. So I didn't know she had a Facebook page because college were trying to teach them to be independent. Um, but yeah, no, no, it, we, we've got to. But the, the, what, what, it's changing our society because what's happening is in politics in the last election, 19 um, MP, female MPs stood down. And the number one reason they gave is the abuse they get online. They couldn't put themselves and their families through it. So it's changing the face of our democracy. It's, it's changing the way people are interacting and women and people with, with vulnerable individuals are using social media. They're being told they have to stay safe. Well, why is a bird? That's completely the wrong way around. So mm-hmm. it, it really, really is important because it's not going to go away. There are lots and lots of fantastic, positive things about platforms and online and social media, but we have to deal with the dark side as well. And it's a fact that... There has to be responsibility. I set up my business in financial services. There are rules and regulations I have to abide by. Mm. I have a duty of care for my client's money. I have to do certain things a certain way. Mm. So why shouldn't an online platform? Well, no, quite. And what do you think it is that keeps you you so driven? I mean, if those 19 other (laughs) female MPs stood down, how, how do you keep going if there's death threats and... I mean, in terms of your work, I know you've always got your home life, but just how do I'm, you keep... I'm, I, I see myself as being very fortunate. Um, I'm very fortunate that I'm lucky enough to be uh, financially secure, that I'm not beholden to anybody. I don't have to go, so it's my money. Mm-hmm. So poor Alan, who says, says, don't come running up me to me when you've, when you've lost all your money or got rid of all your money and expect me to look after you. <laughs> no, he only says it as a joke. <laughs> he just, but I, you know, anything I own, I, I will spend um, as much as I always have done that. My first business, 25% of it went to our charitable endeavours. Um, but all my businesses have done that and I've always done that with mine. So, but that is a huge... That freedom mm. gives me a huge amount of power because I don't, I'm not conflicted. I'm not having to go begging and having any strings attached to anything I do because I mean that, and that is a huge responsibility I see that, you know, I'm successful enough to, and I'm privileged enough to be in that position. And yes, I've worked hard, but I can do, work just as hard doing good with it. Mm. So that's a great freedom. And the other thing I think is um, the book really helped me. My book really helped me get to where I am today because... As I said, going, part, going back and, and writing my life story and understanding for the first time what I actually did survive yeah. because I just moved on and went to the next and, and survived, basically. 
I think I'm, it was almost, I'm forged by a fire that makes me strong enough to carry on. Mm. So for as long as I can, I will. Yeah. I actually remind me of a sort of modern day superhero, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you something very funny on that. When we were growing up in British Guiana, we didn't have television or uh, many books. We had uh, shipments of books came in from England once a month. But from America, we had lots of comic books. So I grew up as a complete Marvel sort of a geek, you know, complete super fan. And so, so I'm right. No, 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 you are right. So I dreamt up a new character called Superwoman because there was Wonder Woman and Supergirl. So I dreamt up Superwoman. And I, as a girl, I think I used to run around with a towel tied around my shoulders. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> and I think I probably did grow up with that, but that was the other one. So I was obsessed with superheroes, but also Bruce Lee, because I have three brothers and my sister's much younger than me. So I used to watch all the Bruce Lee films and yeah. him talking about how you use negative energy. So I think I, I was a complete tomboy. Um, but yeah, there was something of that in there. And I realized that lots of superheroes were lawyers and had this sense of justice. Justice. So I know. Fairness. So I did. I know. So I did. So <laughs> the only, my only big thing years later, I realized, because of course, I never thought Marvel films would ever come out is that I threw away all my comics, but I had them all. For, can you imagine how much they must have been worth when Aww. I did? Well, I think, you know, maybe maybe this weekend, just find a little towel, put it on your back, <laughs> run around a little bit. Superwoman, there she is. <laughs> so that was lovely Gina Miller. I had such a great time talking to her, and I thought so much after we spoke about so many things she'd spoken about. You know, how many of us could say that, you know, we could see something that we knew was not fair, not right? I mean, in her case, obviously, most high profile is something unconstitutional. But there's been lots of injustices that she's had to stick up for. And so this doesn't this doesn't feel right. But how scary must it have been when she, you know, decided to, to launch her case against the government and looked to her left and right and saw lots of people saying, we totally agree with you, but we're too scared to do this. You know, and all the death threats. It's extraordinary, really. But I think a lot about about what she was saying about travelling to areas where she knew that, in general, everybody had voted leave when she feels it's more remain for the UK referendum. And she decided to try and build bridges and say, look, what's done is done. We've now got to look at where we have things in common, not things that divide us. And I, I think about that sort of stuff a lot at the moment. We've just had, obviously, the massive presidential election in America that's dominated the news and much of our thoughts for the last week. And, you know, as it happens, I am firmly in the Biden camp and I'm absolutely thrilled that he is the president and Kamala is the, the vice. And I posted something online saying, you know... I'm, I'm all for this and I got lots of comments of people saying I don't want to hear your politics how dare you unfollow and I just thought what a shame I mean I, I, I like to think that if I was following someone and they had very difficult political different political views to me that that'd be an opportunity for conversation and and to learn how we can try and pull people to see things our way too rather than just going I don't agree with you get out of my life um and I think, you know, as it turned out, Biden won by quite a quite a long way. But there was a long time in the news where it was really pretty neck and neck between Biden and Trump. And I thought, this is actually quite scary, you know, when things, as we know from what happened in the UK with the referendum, it's, it's quite scary when things are sort of, there's not a really clear majority because it leads people to think in a very binary way. I'm right, you're wrong, that's the end of it. We must look at that which... Um, which we, unites us, not divides us. It's so important. So I hope you found Gina inspirational. 
like a real life superhero, like I thought right from the start. Uh, she's smart, she's fearless, and she has a good sense of right and wrong. That's a superhero, isn't it? So hopefully we can all take a little bit of that. Um, I'm still sat in my dressing room. It won't surprise you to hear. I didn't really tidy much of it up while I was listening back. But um, I definitely have a few things that have a cape on it. <laughs> Often covered in sequins. So um, maybe I'll, I'll wear one of those for the rest of the day. <laughs> and you know what? Around my house, no about an eyelid. All right, I will see you next week. Thank you so much. Lots of love. Stay safe and sane in the meantime. And see you soon. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.